Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Hi, we are the SSD Students in Surgery. I'm Anami Stein. And I'm Nicolette de Kok. And today's, in today's episode of the Students of Surgery podcast, we are discussing tumor markers in general surgery with Prof. Brown. So, Prof, just to start it off, what are tumor markers? So tumor markers are, are proteins commonly produced by cancer cells or cells in the body in response to a cancer. But there are also benign or non-cancerous conditions that can produce the same proteins. So in other words, a tumor marker may not be specific to a cancer type. So what do we use tumor markers for? Very few of the markers are used to diagnose a cancer. The most common uses include determining a prognosis of a cancer once it's been diagnosed as well as treatment response, and then once the cancer has been treated, we use these markers for surveillance. Very, very rarely, we may actually use a tumor marker for screening purposes as well, though. So what are some of the commonly used markers in surgery? So I guess in general surgery, there is, of course, the CEA, the CA99, alpha fetoprotein, and then some of the others that are maybe not as common, but we do use them quite a lot, are calcitonin and chromogranin A. There are many, many, many other tumor markers. But these are the most common ones that we'll come across in our field. And I think these are the ones that we should talk about today. Okay, so let's first, what is CEA? So CEA stands for carcinoembryonic antigen. And it's probably the most commonly or widely known of the tumor markers it is very well associated with colon cancer. However, there are other cancers that may have raised levels, and these cancers include breast cancer, lung, pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, liver, and even ovarian cancer. So normal level for CEA in an adult non-smoker is less than 2.5 nanograms per milliliter, and for a smoker, it's less than 5 nanograms per milliliter. What are some of the benign conditions that may give you erased CEA? Yeah, so these are the false positives, I guess. So there are intra-abdominal conditions such as active peptic ulcer disease, acute pancreatitis, uh, inflammatory conditions or infective conditions such as acute cholecystitis, ulcerative colonitis, benign colorectal polyps, and then there are extra-abdominal causes such as benign breast pathology, um, this is usually cystic breast pathology, and lung diseases or chronic lung diseases such as emphysema. And don't forget about the smoker. But their values are not normally very high and that's why the, we have two reference ranges, those for smokers and non-smokers, and smokers being less than 5 nanograms per milliliter. So yeah, as I said, these are all called false positives, um, but they are typically in the range of 5 to 15 nanograms per milliliter. Um, in that range, there's only about 16% of patients that will have a false positive, so it isn't that strongly false positive. There are very few false positives that give you a value greater than 15 nanograms per milliliter, and I think once it's above 35 nanograms per milliliter, it's pretty much diagnostic of a malignancy. So how should we use CEA in clinical practice? So it is used at the beginning of treatment in a cancer that has been diagnosed. So for example, if you had a patient who had a lesion in their colon, they had a colonoscopy, and that tumor was biopsied and it's come back as a colon adenocarcinoma, it's at that stage where we would actually do a CEA. It's done to, to provide prognosis for the patient, but we also do it as a baseline level. 
It is thereafter we will then do it serially, um, ready to monitor response to treatment. And then once the treatment has been completed, we use it for surveillance. But what's also important to remember is that not all of these cancers actually have elevated CEA levels. So for example, if you had a colon cancer and the CEA level is negative, it just tells you that that tumor is not producing CEA. And then in that patient, you can't actually use CEA for response to treatment or for surveillance. So Prof, then what is the role that it plays for cancer screening? So it's not routinely used in the general population as the yield is, is very, very, very low. But if someone has a, a familial genetic syndrome for colon cancer, it is reasonable to use CEA in that specific patient as a screening tool. So if we move on to CA99, what are the differ differential diagnoses for an elevated CA99? So cancer antigen 199 is most commonly associated with pancreatic ductal cancer. But again, there are other cancers that also produce this antigen. And some of these cancers include a primary liver cancer, so HCC, a gallbladder adenocarcinoma, gastric adenocarcinoma, and even colonic adenocarcinoma. There are also benign diseases which cause an elevated CA99. And these include again acute pancreatitis, um, either viral or drug-induced hepatitis, chronic cholecystitis, and it's usually xanthomatous um, cholecystitis, which is one of the malingers or, of gallbladder cancer. And then medical conditions such as cystic fibrosis. So normal CA99 is less than 40 units per milliliter, and values that are greater than 75 units per milliliter are pretty much always due to a cancer. You really ask for CA99 pancreas cancer patients. Why? So CA99 is often elevated in obstructive jaundice, um, and it can be, even be elevated up to levels of 100 units and sometimes more. So it is not an upfront test in these patients, but we do do it in patients that have had their biliary obstruction uh, relieved, um, and in those cases it does become a, a valuable test. Probably where we use it the most in pancreatic cancer is patients who've got a, a pancreas body or tail tumor. So in other words, they don't present with obstructive jaundice. And in those scenarios, it is quite a sensitive test in predicting metastatic disease if, it's, if, if the level is greater than 100. Then how should we use CA99? So we should really use it once the diagnosis has been made. Um, so if you have a tumor that you're not going to operate up front, it will be biopsied for whatever reason, and you have your diagnosis, we can use CA99. And we use it for the purpose of providing the patient with some prognostic information about their tumor. And we also use it for treatment response. And probably a good example here with pancreatic cancer is if we sent the patient for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, it's a good, uh, good marker of response to treatment if that CA99 starts coming down. Once we've treated the patient, so for example, we've done their Whipple, or we've done their distal pancreatectomy, and we've excised the tumor, we use it for surveillance. Uh, we do not use CA99 as a screening tool. What is also important to mention is that carbohydrate antigen 99 is also known as a monociliated Lewis antigen, which is a blood group antigen. Approximately 15% of patients do not have the Lewis antigen and hence cannot express it. In other words, CA99 cannot be used as a tumor marker in this patient group. Alright, Prof, you also mentioned AFP as another common tumor marker. How do we use this in general surgery? 
Alpha-fetoprotein is one of the few commonly used tumor markers that has a very strong diagnostic value. A patient with a hypervascular liver tumor which washes out in the venous phase together with an AFP level of greater than 400 is a hepatocellular carcinoma. It is one of the few tumors which medical oncologists will treat without a histological diagnosis, provided both the classical imaging features as well as the raised AFP are present. Are there any other conditions that may have a raised AFP level? So again, there are various other malignancies. So probably the most common are ovarian and testicular cancers, which are the embryonal or yolk sac tumors. However, we can also get teratomas that produce AFP. And then there are benign causes, though there's not that many of them, and they prim primarily are liver diseases. So uh, liver cirrhosis and active acute hepatitis can cause a raised AFP level, but usually not to the above 400 level. And then in practice, how do we use this? So in practice, it's usually a patient who's referred to the clinic or to the ward, known with a liver tumor. One would do a triphasic CT scan. On the CT scan, we have the classical features of a hepatocellular carcinoma. And we would then confirm our diagnosis by doing a serum AFP level. However, with regards to the other tumors, these are usually patients who present with, a, with a, a mass on clinical examination. They end up having a CT scan. And then one looks at their age and where the tumor is located um, and some of the imaging features. And if we are suspicious of it being one of the embryonal tumors or a teratoma, we would then um, do an AFP to help us make the final diagnosis. So if we move on to calcitonin, it is normally produced in the thyroid. So why is it considered a tumor marker? Yeah, so that's correct. So calcitonin is normally produced in thyroid C cells and helps with calcium homeostasis. To such a degree, it's even known as thyrocalcitonin. Typical calcitonin and CEAR widely used as tumor markers for the post-operative follow-up with patients that had a medullary thyroid carcinoma. It is fairly specific for medullary thyroid cancer, though high levels can also be associated with hyperplasia. So a normal level here would be less than 10 picograms per milliliter. When would we use a serum calcitonin? So there really are only four scenarios in which we would do this. So the first one is to diagnose C-cell hyperplasia and medullary thyroid carcinoma. Um, we would also use it to, again, monitor the response of therapy. And once the therapy is completed, we would use it for surveillance. And this is one of the screening tools. So we would use it to screen people with a family history of multiple endocrine neoplasia, specifically type 2. A family history of this disease would put the patient at a high risk of developing medullary thyroid cancer. So this is a blood test we would do pretty regularly in these patients. The last tumor marker that you listed was chromogranin A. What is this? So this is a granin, and the granins belong to the family of acidic proteins that constitute a major component of secretory granules of various endocrine and neuroendocrine cells, which are components of both the classical endocrine glands as well as diffuse neuroendocrine system. However, it is a very non-specific blood test, and a number of pathological processes result in an increase in its, in its expression in the blood. Um, but we do use it as a tumor marker for neuroendocrine tumors, and again, it is pretty much once we have our diagnosis. What are some of the conditions which may result in a false positive elevation? So in clinical practice, the most common causes of, of false chromogranin results 
is even something as benign as the use of proton pump inhibitors for peptic ulcer disease. But then we also have disease conditions of the stomach such as atrophic um, gastritis, patients that have chronic impaired renal function, uh, a whole wide variety of inflammatory uh, disorders, but probably the most common of them is systemic lupus erythematous. And the majority of false positive results are between two to four times the upper limit of normal. However, unfortunately, there's a large number of these that can even go to five to 20 times higher than the upper limit of normal. And that's why it really is a non-specific test and we only really do use it once we have a diagnosis. So which neuroendocrine diseases cause a rise in chromogranin A? So there are a few, um, but the ones that we really need to worry about are pheocytochromas. And again, one usually has a diagnosis of this already. It would be a lesion on a CT scan combined with the typical um, features of, of hypertension, paroxysmal hypertension, etc. Other conditions would be neuroblastomas, again, medullary thyroid carcinoma, which is also an endocrine tumor, pituitary adenomas, primary hyperparathyroidism, and even hormonal activity of the, of the fetal placenta can give it to you. We've also used it um, to differentiate the causes of hypocortisolism. So how is chromogranin A then commonly used? So its greatest value is a marker of disease, um, especially in, in, in the absence of metastatic disease to the liver. It is believed that with improved diagnostic sensitivity of chromogranin A, um, together with combining it with imaging techniques, specifically with new, uh, nuclear medicine techniques such as PET-CT, um, which looks at somatostatin receptors as well, we can actually use it um, to give us a good idea of what kind of neuroendocrine tumor we are dealing with. But again, while interpreting these levels, one must really be aware of the multitude of factors that can lead to both positive and negative results. Thank you, Prof, for this brief overview. Do you have any concluding remarks? So in most cases, um, tumor markers are not upfront tests. In most cases, tumor markers should only be done once you have your diagnosis. The exception to the rule here is hepatocellular carcinoma. But when you do order a, a tumor marker, before you order it, you must know what are the false positives or false negatives that are associated with and conditions that may actually alter the, the value and the interpretation of it. An example here would be your CA99 and obstructive jaundice. So use them wisely and don't use them up front um, because the downside of it is if you do do these tests and they are elevated, you're obliged to go exclude malignancies and your patient may be exposed to investigations and procedures that were actually never really indicated. So have a solid indication when you ask for a tumor marker. Okay, thank you, Prof. I think now we have a, a better understanding of tumor markers and how we can use them in a clinical practice. So thank you. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh, and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.